Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate you leading us this morning. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to look at a very famous verse of Scripture this morning. Many of you know it well. I pray that God would just make this even fresh to us today by His Spirit and that we would be reminded of his great goodness and his great salvation to us who are in him. John 3.16, the verse we're going to look at together this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Father, we just pray that you would do a great work in our lives even this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, you have promised that your word will not return void. It will go out, it will accomplish, Lord, whatever you desire. And so I pray that it would find a place in each of our hearts, each of our lives this day, that we may honor and glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you who are as old as me may remember this man who I'm gonna put on the screen. This was the John 3.16 guy. His name is Roland Stewart, also known as Rainbow Man. He first showed up on the American sports scene during the 1977 NBA Finals. Initially, he, put on a, he merely put on a, a rainbow-colored Afro wig and danced wildly for the cameras. But after the 1980 Super Bowl, Stewart sat in his hotel room watching an, evangelism, uh, an evangelist named Charles Taylor and that night made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Shortly after this, he came up with the idea for adding the sign John 3.16 for his repertoire. And so for the next decade, he traveled the globe to display his signs and banners. Among the events he attended were the Olympics, the World Cup, NFL playoff games, the Indianapolis 500, the Masters Golf Tournament, horse races, and even the wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles. (laughs) He claimed that he drove 60,000 miles a year just to attend sporting events, and he figured out the prime positions for holding his signs as he carried a battery-operated television to the games to help him figure out where the cameras were pointed. And when he got on camera, the verse that he always held up was John 3.16, the most famous words of the Son of God. For those of you who are not old enough to remember Rainbow Man, probably a lot of you, here's a more contemporary sports figure and uh, who displayed verses not on signs but under his eyes, which once included John 3.16. And some of you think that's a picture of the man who just gave his testimony, Paul Carruthers. Uh, That's actually Tim Tebow. Uh, This is Paul Carruthers, the next slide. So see, they do look alike. Tim's a lot better looking, though, for sure. All right, that's all the slides I have, okay? For those of you that were getting ready to walk out, I'm done. Just, uh, I want you to know this, if you didn't know this, when Tim Tebow wore John 3.16 under his eyes in the national championship game, Florida versus Oklahoma, 93 million people Googled John 3.16. And as amazing as, as I typed up my notes this week that the word Googled was not spell-checked. It's actually a verb now, Googled. That just amazed me. Well, why is this verse so famous? 
And why are these considered to be the most famous words of Jesus? Why are these the most famous words of the Son of God? Well, perhaps because we find the simple gospel message in one verse. 25 words here in the New American Standard, 25 words in the King James Version, 25 words in the Greek text as well. And so today we want to look at and answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news? And we will see that as we examine John 3.16 today, the most famous words of the Son of God. Number one, from this verse, we learn that the gospel begins with God. The gospel begins with God. And we see this here in verse 13 or verse 16, the first two words, for God. The gospel begins with the letter G. The gospel begins with God. Some have said God is the gospel. The gospel begins with with God and his glory and not with man and his needs. The gospel begins with God and salvation was initiated by him and not us. How many of you are glad this morning that God took the initiative to come to us? That he didn't wait for us to come to him because he would have waited for all eternity. John 6.44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And we were unwilling to come to Christ. We despised his holiness. We were unable to come to him because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we see that the gospel began in the heart of God when our hearts were turned away from him. God wanted you and I to be a part of his family. God wanted to forgive us of our sin and give us eternal life. And so he took the initiative to make that happen. He sent his one and only son to die a cruel death so that he might bring us to God. The gospel begins with God. It, it begins with God and his glory, and I'll repeat this, and not with man and his need. It begins with the fact that God is holy, that he alone is righteous and just, that he is too pure to even look upon evil, that he is eternal, that he has always been, and that he will always be, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and that he has declared the end from the beginning that there is no one or nothing like him in the world, that he alone is to be worshiped, that he is in need of nothing. He is perfect and he alone is good. There was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus one day as we heard from brother Sean a few weeks ago in his sermon. And this man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him and said to him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And we see Jesus here beginning this gospel presentation with the character of God, that God and God alone is good. And if Jesus began his presentation of the gospel in that way with the character of God, I think we should as well. People need to understand who God is, not according to their preconceived ideas or notions or traditions or what they may have learned growing up, or an idol that perhaps they've created in their own minds. They need to know what the Bible says about God so that they know who they are trusting in when they place their faith in him. And so they understand also the implications of not believing in him. So the first point we see here is that the gospel begins with God. Secondly, we see that the gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. The gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. Jesus says here, for God so loved the world. 
Most English versions, versions translate this verse the same, for God so loved the world, but I want you to not think like an American just for a minute. Jesus is not speaking to Nicodemus to us and to us today like we often speak to little children when we say, I love you so much. And the child says, how much do you love me, daddy? How much do you love me, mommy? And we say, I love you this much, right? To the moon and back. I really like how the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. It, it reads this way, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. The gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. We know the apostle John is the human author of this gospel. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. But John recorded the words that we are examining today. He is also the human author of three other books, or four other books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. And in his first epistle, 1st John, he writes much about the love of God. He says in 1st John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 1st John 4, 8, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how God demonstrated his love for us. He did so by sending us his one and only son to leave the glory of heaven, to leave that perfect unhindered fellowship that he had for all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit and to come to earth and to be born of a virgin in the humblest of births, and to grow as a child and to live an absolutely perfect and sinless life, to be rejected, to be betrayed by one of his own disciples, and to be mocked and scorned and crucified on a cross, to die instead of us, to be a propitiation for our sins, to atone for our sins, and take the punishment for our sins that we deserved. I like verses like John three sixteen because in one verse, we see the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have some other examples of this in the Bible. In the book of Romans, Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God demonstrated his great love by sending his son to die for us, to die in our place, to die in our stead. There's no, there was no greater way for him to demonstrate his love for us than in this. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for sinners, for people like you and me. He laid down his life for his friends and he calls us friends. This is the greatest act of love ever demonstrated for mankind. So the gospel begins with God. The gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. Number three, we see that the gospel is about the sacrifice of God's son. The gospel is about the sacrifice 
of God's son. Back to verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave his one and only son the word begotten in the Greek monogenes, his one and only son. God gave us his unique son. There is no one like Christ ever. He is the God man. No one else that you will meet in your life can say I'm a God man. He is 100% God, 100% man, God incarnate, God with a human body. And God gave him to the world. He came into this world, the very world that he created, the very world that he spoke into existence. We learn in the opening verses of this great gospel that all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Bible, the authoritative word of God makes no room for humanistic evolution. Jesus made it all. And God gave this Christ to the world. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He was born to Mary and Joseph and born in Bethlehem. He grew up like you and me, but he grew up without sin. The Bible states that Jesus Christ did not sin one time. And I always thank his poor brothers and sisters. They had no shot. He was the firstborn, you know, and can you imagine Mary saying, hey, Jude, could you take out the trash? Jude's like, no. And Mary would say, your brother Jesus would have taken out the trash. In fact, what would Jesus do? That's where it all began. True story, true story. Jesus performed many miracles. He did great signs and wonders. He caused the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. But God gave his son primarily to the world as a sacrifice for sin, to give his life for sinners, to die a sacrificial and substitutionary, substitutionary death for us. It's absolutely incredible to think about that Christ would give his life for us. For sinners like us, right, Paul? It's almost too magnificent to think about. It's like David in Psalm 139 when he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. It is like Paul in Romans 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. It is so wonderful, it is so incredible that Christ would give his life for us, that Jesus would die in our place, that the Son of God would die instead of you and instead of me. We know ourselves, right? We know how wicked and evil and sinful that we are. We know that it is us who should have been crucified on a cross and not the perfect Lamb of God. And this is what we call the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said a lot about the substitutionary death of Jesus, and he said this, in one word, the great fact on which the Christian's hope rests is substitution. The vicarious sacrifice of Christ for the sinner, Christ suffering for the sinner, Christ being made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Christ offering up a true and proper substitutionary sacrifice in the place of as many as the Father gave him, who are recognized by their trusting in him, this is the cardinal fact of the gospel. Well said from one of the greatest preachers to ever live. God gave us his son as a sacrifice for our sins, as a substitute for our sins. We learn in Isaiah 53 that some refer to as the first gospel, that it pleased God. It pleased the father to not only give his son to the world, but it also pleased the father to crush him, putting him to grief. Because by doing this, we would become his offspring. We would become sons and daughters of the king and live with him forever. So the gospel begins with God. The gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. The gospel is about the sacrifice of God's son. And without that sacrifice, there is no good news. Fourthly, we see that the gospel is received by belief in the son. The gospel is received by belief in the son. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. If you grew up on the King James like me, you remember this, whoever, whosoever believeth, right? Today we're in the gospel of John, also known as the gospel of belief, because in this account, the word believe is found 98 times, and this is one of those occurrences. Let's read the verse again in its entirety. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel begins with God. It's a demonstration of the love of God. It's about the sacrifice of God's son. And therefore, whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel really isn't complicated. It's about believing in the son. It's about belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have to be very careful here. This is not just about head knowledge. It's not just about intellectual assent. If you go back to John chapter two, maybe a page or two in your Bibles, in verses 23 and 24, this is what we read. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. John says here that many believed in his name after observing the signs that he was doing, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. It's the same word. They were believing in him, but he was not believing in them because he knew their hearts, because he knew all men. Believing in Jesus is not just acknowledging that he came to earth or that he performed many signs and miracles or that he came from God or that he was a great teacher or that he was even a prophet. It's about entrusting yourself to him. It's about believing that he is who he said he was, that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God, that he is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through him. 
It's about believing in what he did, that he lived an absolutely perfect and sinless life, that he died an atoning sacrificial death in the place of sinners, and that he was buried and placed in a borrowed tomb, and on the, on the third day he rose from the dead. This was of supreme importance to the Apostle Paul. When he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. When you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are entrusting your life to him. You are placing your life in his hands. You are acknowledging that he is the savior of the world that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he indeed is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father, no one gets to heaven except through him, that there is salvation in no one else, and that his name is the name above all names. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are believing that Christ came to earth, that he lived a perfect life in your place, that he secured the righteousness that you would need to stand before a holy and righteous God, that he died an atoning death for sinners and that he was buried, he really was dead, and that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that he ascended back to the Father in heaven, and that he is now seated at God's right hand, and that he is coming again, and that could be today. Hallelujah. That is what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel begins with God. The gospel is a demonstration of the love of God. The gospel is about the sacrifice of God's son. The gospel is received by belief in the son. And number five, the gospel results in everlasting life. The gospel results in everlasting life. Those guys aren't offended. They're just going to go get ready for baptism. I read about a dozen translations when, of John 3.16, preparing for this message. They all translate the Greek verb here, perish. Well, all except for the message. They miss it on that one. This word means to perish or to destroy. We all know of people who in this life believed in Christ. They confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. They believed in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Yet they died, and they are no longer here. What are we to do with this? Well, clearly Jesus here is speaking about spiritual death. The one who believes, the one who entrusts himself to Jesus Christ will not perish. The one who entrusts himself to Jesus will not die. He will not be destroyed. He will not be separated from God. He may die physically, but he will never die spiritually He will never be cut off from God. Instead, he will live forever and have eternal life, everlasting life. Look back at verses 14 and 15 here in chapter 3. 
We read here, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the testimony of the gospel of John. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the testimony of the word of God that whoever or whosoever believes or believeth, whichever you like, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and will have everlasting life. Verse 36 of this chapter, Jesus says, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In John 5, Jesus will say in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What a comfort for those of us who have truly believed, including all of us that are here this morning. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are trusting in him and what he has done for you, you have eternal life today. It's already begun. And the Bible says, if that's true of you, you will not come into judgment. You will not face the wrath of God. You will never know his anger. You will never experience being separated from his love and mercy and grace because you have crossed over from death to life and there's no going back. Even if you are to die physically, you will not perish eternally. You will not die spiritually. You will not be destroyed. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And to depart and be with Christ is very much better. Eternal life begins the moment you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't have to fear physical death. Because the Bible says that being justified by faith, we have peace with God and that there is therefore now in the present, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul would say that nothing, not death, not life, not angels, not principalities, not powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. My prayer today is that two things will happen. First, if you're here this morning and you are without Christ, that you would see that Jesus is who he said that he was, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, and that you would see that Jesus did the things that the Bible says that he did, that Jesus did live a perfect life, that he did die a substitutionary death in the place of sinners, and that he rose from the dead on the third day. But second, if you are here this morning and you say, I have believed on Jesus Christ, you've entrusted yourself to him, you believe he is who he said that he was, you have confessed with your mouth that he is Lord, you have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are trusting in him and him alone, that you would have today the assurance of your salvation, that you would know without a doubt that you have everlasting life. God wants you to know you have eternal life. God wants you to have assurance of eternal life. We're not going to turn there, but in, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, John there is giving assurance. He's writing to believers to give them assurance, confidence in their God. And we see that 
in that passage that eternal life is from the Father. It is found in the Son. It is impossible apart from the Son. It is accessed through faith. And it is a present reality. John says, I write to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you are in Christ and you are trusting in his person, you are trusting in his work, you are trusting in his death, his burial, his resurrection, be assured, be comforted today that you have eternal life. But if you are here today and you are outside of Christ, trust him today. While today is still called today, no one is guaranteed tomorrow. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Place your life in his hands and know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these famous words that we find in John 3.16. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank thank you that the gospel began with you. Lord, it's not about our needs, our wants, our desires. It's about you and your glory. And we thank you that you love the world in this way, that you sent your one and only son to come to earth to live a perfect life to die a sacrificial and atoning death in our place by bearing our sins in your body on the tree that we might live to righteousness, that we might have the forgiveness of sin, that we might have the hope of eternity with you. Thank you for your word. I pray for those that are here this morning that don't know you. Lord, I pray you would be gracious to them as you were gracious to me and so many others that you would Even now, Lord, grant them repentance from their sin, that they could turn from their sin and turn to you. Give them faith to believe in your son. Convince them, Lord, that your word is true, that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. Thank you for these five men now that are going to be baptized. I pray as they publicly declare their faith in you, Lord, that, Lord, you would help them in their walk that you would provide brothers and sisters to come alongside of them, to encourage them. Thank you for a group and a family like FCA and for a church like this where we can come to them and encourage them and love them and support them as they walk with you. May you be glorified in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.